Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And um, we've reached Appendix C on page 476. Enjoy. This is called Concerning Joseph Smith's Memoirs by President Frederick M. Smith. In the closing three or four years of his life, my father spent much time, with the help of a secretary, in writing his memoirs. It was the original intention and expressed in a sort of agreement between him and brother E. L. Kelly, the then presiding bishop of the church, that the writing should issue as a book. There was even agreement on how the proceeds from the sale of the book should apply. Brother I. A. Smith was acting as secretary to his father at the time of father's decease, and many of his shorthand notes remained untranscribed for some time thereafter, but gradually these were set over as opportunity permitted, and the manuscript, when eventually completed, comprised some 1,800 pages or thereabouts. It was the desire of my father expressed to me and also to others of the family that the boys, referring to I.A. and me, should carefully scrutinise the manuscript before issuing as a publication. Into this task of editing we called a sister, Mrs. B.M. Anderson, who, taking the bulky manuscript to her home, spent many months reading and editing it, having in view chiefly the task of avoiding repetitions and making such other changes as might be necessary in the interest of accuracy. When her work was done, and she had spent many, many hours recopying the manuscript when necessary, the three of us, I.A., Aldie and myself, together spent the time necessary to read it aloud, discuss various points and make decisions necessary in many instances. Time had been rapidly running, and ere this status of the manuscript was reached several years, have passed since the writer of the memoirs had ceased his earthly activities, as it proved since more time was to pass before the manuscript in printed form could be presented to the, saint, the saints. All this time it was expected that the writings should appear as a book. In the meantime, however, the Board of Publication, like all other departments of the church, being under the necessity of carefully budgeting its work in order to avoid an annual deficit, had developed a policy to the effect that the issuing of a publication would be either on the basis of a probable paying return from sales, or else the church would assume the responsibility and provide against the board of publication sustaining a financial loss. This would require appropriations from provided budgets, when, therefore, the manuscript was finally ready for publication, because of my responsibility in the matter, I approached the Board of Publication on the question of its issuing as a book, as per the original intention. As the printing of the book would involve a rather large outlay of money before there would be any return in the way of sales, the Board was reluctant to assume the responsibility and risk facing a deficit. The presidency had no provision in their budget to meet the situation and no other budget provision had been made whereby the situation could be met. As a further factor in helping me decide what to do, I solicited an, ex an expression of opinion from the board 
as to when, if at all, they would probably feel disposed to advance the money necessary to print as a book. On being informed that it might be five years or more, if at all, I made the decision as editor-in-chief of the Herald that it would run as a serial and begin without delay. I met quite some opposition to this from those who were strongly inclined to think it should issue as a book only, and that printed as a serial in the Herald would lessen the circulation as a book. My decision was fortified in my own mind by several reasons. Some twenty years had passed since the dictation of the memoirs was completed, and every year witnessed the passing of men who knew father as churchman, companion, fellow worker and citizen. Those who would enjoy the memoirs, most were growing fewer by death. Already too slow progress had been made in fulfilling the intention to give the writings to the church. I felt too that the reading of the memoirs by the saints would result in enhancing their spirituality. This opinion was shared by the members of the family who worked with me on the manuscript. The effects we felt in reading the experience in life of a man who so obviously was unreservedly consecrated to the church and gave so unstintingly of his best to promote its interests were distinctly towards the end of increasing our own devotion to an interest in the church and we felt sure that on the whole the memoirs would have a wholesome and definite effect in promoting spirituality and consecration among the readers. I felt the church needed such and that to further delay the publication would be a definite loss along those lines even if the issuing as a serial might later curtail the sale of the book, if ever so issued. The good done by an early publication would justify the issuance of a serial. So whether or not the memoirs will ever appear as a book, the reader of the Herald are now having the opportunity to read them, and that they are being enjoyed and proving helpful is beyond doubt. I feel disposed to add that Brother I.A., in giving the years of service as secretary to his father, made a distinct contribution to the cause. It was a sure, I'll start again, it was a work of love, and the same can be said of Sister Aldi, who so painstakingly read, reread, copied and recopied in the interest of better editing. As for myself, well, if blame is to attach for not waiting till the memoirs could appear in a book, Foreman deciding to issue as a serial, let it attach solely to me. And if good shall come to the church by strengthening the devotion and enlarging the spirit of consecration in the saints, then my reward shall be found in the consciousness that the interests of the church have been advanced. Appendix D. Images of Joseph Smith III disclosed in his letters by Richard P. Howard, Church Historian. Over 3,000 letters of Joseph Smith III, most of them in his own handwriting, written between the years 1855 and 1914, repose in the RLDS archives. These letters, letters speak, as does no other corpus of material of the character, the minds and attitudes of the first pre prophet president, of the reorganised Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The memoirs are a rich load of data on this remarkable man, as he was able to recall his history many years later. However, the letters give us an almost daily glimpse of the workings of his mind, 
the formation and expression of his values and the depths of his feeling and the depth of his feelings for the issues and persons with whom he interacted and how varied were the issues his role required for him to face name a topic and there is a line somewhere in his letters touching it my purpose in this brief essay is then to illuminate for the reader the many faceted nature of Joseph Smith III, as revealed in his correspondence, the process of selection from such a wide range of materials, difficult as it was, serves to point readers and researchers to the much broader scope of inquiry offered by literally thousands of separate writings of Joseph Smith III in his letters, editorials, sermons, articles and diary entries. If the inclusion of this essay with this new edition of the memoirs allows the reader to open the door ever so slightly to the complexities of Joseph Smith, of Joseph the Third's difficult and exciting world, then the publication of his memoirs will be all the more significant an event for the sesquicentennial year of the Restoration. For in the final analysis, Joseph the Third's memoirs can be nothing but enriched in their minds by these glimpses into his being through his letters. Joseph's style of leadership. The following excerpt from Joseph's from Joseph Third's eighteen eighty one letter to William H. Kelly relates related excuse me for tripping over my words. <laughs> I'll start again. The following excerpt from Joseph the third's 1881 letter to William H. Kelly related to a problem in Kelly's mission on which he had asked Joseph's advice. In what Joseph says, we can see his determination to delegate authority in practice as well as in theory. Any opinion that I may have about the mission I will cheerfully express, but decline assuming any responsibility of decision. Brother I.L. Rogers and Bren W. H. Kelly and T. W. Smith have active and actual oversight and like a good soldier I shall stand by their generalship as I trust them fully. Joseph Smith, 3rd, Plano, Illinois to W. H. Kelly, July 4th, 1881, RVLTS Archives. Joseph was a long time coming to his determination to lead the reorganised church, but once he had made up his mind, there was no turning back. Some 33 years after Amboy, Joseph wrote to his counsellor in the presidency, W.W. W. Blair, reminding him of his, Blair's, off-stated view that if the church tended in wrong directions, Blair would be free to walk away from it and that self-respect and individual rectitude were better and more demanding than church association and priesthood, but Joseph held a different position. My case is somewhat different from yours in some regards. In answer to my inquiry, God answered me that I should connect myself with the reorganised church and to oppose polygamy. I did as directed and shall abide the consequences of my obedience, unless he shall direct me to do otherwise. I cannot step down and out and abandon what is to me a sacred trust, except upon the occurrences of the gravest necessity from the conduct of life, or my own fatal lapse from virtue's ways. 
Joseph Smith III to W. W. Blair, December 20th, 1893, letter book 5, page 47, RLTS archives. That Joseph agonised over the implications of such a stand seems clear from a later comment to Blair in that same letter, for he openly shared with Blair his own inner turmoil over the degree of responsibility he must bear for the church's lack of progress in its mission and its indecisiveness in pursuing God's work in the world. I have not been thoughtless nor indifferent to passing events nor to the needs of the hour, but how are they to be met has occupied my mind more than the thought of them. Others have seen and told me what ought to be done and demand that they be done as yet. I have not seen how nor been able to do them or have them done because of that. I have been told that it must be because the head was sick that the body church did not prosper and progress. And I've been told even that the reason why the Lord did not speak to us last spring was because the head was sick, as evidenced by what was called my peak, when I was so venomous. I will not dispute the idea. It may be correct. If it is, however, there ought to be a remedy, and it should be applied. Now, until I can see my way clearly, ought I to move forward in any important measure? It is my daily desire to be led aright. Will the Lord suffer me to hurt his work by either delay or haste? Joseph Smith III to W. W. Blair, December the 20th, 1893, letter book 5, page 51. As, pra as pragmatic and realistic and down-to-earth as Joseph was in his leadership of the church, he consistently exhibited a strong optimism and tended to view things over the long haul. Again, citing the 1893 letter to W.W. Blair, we find Joseph trying to encourage his counsellor to see the more positive side of things. It seems to me that you misinterpret both dreams concerning the trains. It is true these trains were running backwards, that is, were being pushed, not drawn by the engines, but you and I were at the front in both instances, at that end of the train, which was leading, the fact that we were not in the rear car and someone else in charge of the train would to me indicate that we were in our proper places for the emergency and not that we were being overshadowed and left out of the position we should occupy. It is clear that the force that moves the train is not us but is plied from other sources than ourselves. We are the lookout in charge, saw the obstructions, feared for the consequences but were assured that all would go well and the train be not wrecked. In both instances, the train did reach safety without being reversed, and I am disposed to take the dreams as in indicative of good rather than disaster as a result. Joseph Smith III to W. W. Blair, December the 20th, 1893, letter book 5, pages 49 to 50. This last excerpt demonstrates that on occasion Joseph Smith did not hesitate to call into question others' interpretations of religious experiences. However, when it came to matters impinging on administrative functions and responsibilities, while he was inclined to express his opinion, his position, he was careful not to interfere with local prerogative. In 1894, for example, 
R.B. Maloney had announced to Joseph that he intended to require tobacco users to conquer their habit before he would baptise them. Writing to Joseph Luff, Maloney's supervising minister, Joseph encloses his letter to Maloney, in which he tells Maloney, in no uncertain terms, that by taking such a position, he cannot represent the church as a conference appointee, and that if he insists on such an approach, he will forfeit his appointment. But in his letter to Luff, Joseph Smith leaves the final decision up to Luff. Should you choose to write him or reverse my action, please act at your discretion. I send my letter to him, to you. If you concur, please send it with your endorsement. If you disagree with me on the point, please return my letter to me and deal with the case as your discretion may suggest. It would seem that the young man is riding a hobby and may get thrown. Do not hesitate to act as you may choose. If you differ from me on the issue, I believe Brother Maloney to be out of harmony with the eldership in the matter and wrong in theory and practice, but you may not think so. Joseph Smith III to Joseph Luff, May the 11th, 1894, letter book 5, pages 262-263. In reading the correspondence of Joseph Smith III, one gains the conviction that the first RLDS president was a people person and leader, i.e. people and their feelings and ideas counted heavily with him. This added dimension of openness and tenderness in his leadership style endeared him to his followers, who must surely have known of his opening statements to the 1860 Amboy Conference, to the effect that he had come there at the direction of God and was not to be dictated by any men or set of men, but in obedience to a power not his own. Brother Derry, I would have, I would that every brother holding the confidence of the church and who feels a desire for the good of church would write to me frequently. I do much writing, but I can do more, and I would feel a renewed energy from every letter. Brethren ought not to fear the brethren. I want the confidence of the church. I want them to know me and my desires for the church, that we may labour together. Joseph Smith III to Charles Derry, February 15th, 1867, RELDS Archives, page 15-F4. Earlier in that same letter, he had expressed appreciation for Derry's ideas about the gathering, freely admitting his reliance on them in recent articles in the Herald, volume 11, page 40-42 and 56-59. Nowhere in is Joseph's humane consideration for people more poignantly seen as expressive of his leadership style than in, in the case of Jason W. Briggs, whose unorthodox beliefs and roughshod way of urging them in public had alienated many of his peers from him in the church. In discussing the matter with W.W. W. Blair in a letter dated January the 30th, 1879, Joseph projects the warmth and kindness of his nature. So far as standing between Jason Briggs and the just administration of justice is concerned, so far as I can say or do, Jason shall not be unfairly treated nor unjustly churched. I am well aware that the feeling that I was shielding him exists. I have known it ever since 1860, but when for me he would have been read out as I verily believe. I believe that God chose him for a work and until I believe that God is done with him I shall stand by him but in no other way nor sense 
than I would by the humblest man in the church in similar circumstances. Joseph Smith III to W. W. Blair, January 30, 1879, letter book 2, page 76. Occasionally, Joseph's letters revealed that humility so essential to effective leadership. The specific idea of expressing this humility was his conviction that he was finally expendable. I feel satisfied that if Jason Briggs was justly dealt by and found sufficiently unworthy to disfellowship, his dropping out would no more affect the final triumph than the defection of any other. I feel further that I might become a transgressor and be cut off and still the work would survive and flourish to its triumph. Joseph Smith III to W. W. Blair, January 30th, 1879, letter book 2, page 77. Apostle Kelly was among the many who often sought Joseph's attendance at district conferences. More often than not, Joseph responded to such invitations in ways that not only reflected the financial straits of the early church and its leadership, but also conveyed Joseph's essential humility, his conviction of the worth of others, of his co-labourers. I'm not egotist enough to think complacently that my company and speech are of such value that communities ought to pay my way, etc. Hence, unless the work we all love so much could be aided or helped by my efforts to such a degree as to more than compensate the outlay involved, $40 plus, I prefer not to see it made. There are so many who are more efficient in the ministry as preachers than I dare to think I am, who are in need of means, that I am loath to think about diverting or allowing to be diverted from them a single available dollar, like the zero. If I can be the zero, I may burden the solution and may only add zero, 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 zero to the result. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, February 19, 1884, RLDS Archives. Joseph's sense of humour. Not one given to overstatement or flowery rhetoric, Joseph III often left behind a trail of words that evoked the response of delight in the reader. Often the word trail would be quite short, as few as three or four words. He enjoyed a good-humoured friendship with Apostle William H. Kelly, to whom he not merely wrote letters, but with whom he shared his pathos as well as his mirth. He once told Kelly of his, ten of his tension-filled day at Carthage, Illinois, the place of his father's death, where he had gone to preach the gospel and to visit the places where the closing scenes of Joseph and Hiram's, Hiram Smith's lives had unfolded. I taught the people the truths for which they died and obtained the attention of the people who heard me, I was, I was well treated and returned whole. Wonders are unceasing. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, January the 22nd, 1880, RLDS Archives. Sometimes in the midst of the proverbial war over the issue of general conference representation, Joseph needed a chance to pause for a smile and a chance to let the contagion of his humour elicit laughter in his fellow saints. I feel like the boy whose father took him and bending him down, put his head between his legs below the knees and proceeded to spank him on the spot where it would do the most good. The boy turned his head a little and bit the old gent. 
Stop that, you scoundrel. You are biting me. I know that. But look here, Pop. Who began this war? Joseph Smith the Third to William H. Kelly, July 20th, 1881, RLDS Archives. Joseph once sent William H. Kelly a poem, or a portion of one, calculated by its author to flatter him with praise. The reader is not told who wrote the poem, and unfortunately Kelly did not retain it. In any case, Joseph's comments in relation to it convey his lively sense of humour, as does his observation about circumstances. The enclosed poem, or fragment of one, is referred to you for your enjoyment, as it is hardly permissible for so personal a tribute to you as a live man to appear in Herald. If you were a dead hero and past flattery, we might do it, you know. I'm sincerely regretful that circumstances prevent Brother D.F. Lambert being with you at your debate. What a pile of sin of commission and omission that devil of circumstances will have to answer to. Eh, Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, February 7, 1884, RLDS Archives. By December 1882, Joseph and his family had spent their first year in Lamoni and were first becoming acquainted were fast becoming acquainted with the citizenry. He must have been rushed on December the 7th when he wrote a cryptic note to William H. Kelly to inform him that the Herald Press had set up a tract in Scandinavian, but that it would not be forthcoming. He wryly observed that it had been waiting the actions of the revising committee and died a natural death. Then along the left side of the page and crossing the lines of the letter it's itself was this endearing aside. You have quite a number of friends here, however preposterous it may seem. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, December 7th, 1882, RLGS Archives. That very same month, Kelly had sent a statistical report in on a recently deceased person named Brother White. There was an error in the report, so Joseph Smith III chose to employ humour in communicating with Kelly on the matter. We are a little in doubt as to how a man may be born in, in September 1882, be married, baptised in October 1882, and die in December of the same year. The figures given by you in Brother White's death notice are a little confused. As we read them, please correct the figures of his birth and return. Please. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, December 18th, 1882, RLDS Archives. The late 1800s were an era were an era of debates in which RLDS elders took on Baptists, Christians, Disciples, Campbellites and Utah Mormons with great enthusiasm. One of the more notable debates involved Bishop E. L. Kelly and the Reverend Clark Braden, disciple. Apparently Braden had behaved quite coarsely and viciously in the debate, finally retreating to the M.E. Church in Lamoni to deliver his vin to deliver his vindictive diatribes against Mormonism. He closed with a new challenge to Mormons and made it perpetual by leaving it open for the duration of his lifetime. Joseph Smith III wanted no more of that sort of unprincipled debates, so in advising Brother R. R. Dana of San Bernardino, California, about the propriety of debating Braden and other Christians, we have had occasion to use this already against a disreputable pusher of the Christians, and choked him off at once. You just say about him that we cannot justly be accused of backing out to meet him till he is dead, and we, having shown no fear to meet him, Brother Kelly, having met 
Emmett, Wilbur, Nebraska, Kirtland, Ohio, Belair, Illinois, Anslemonia, Iowa, and Brother Gillen at Stewartsville, Missouri, will take our own time to fall with him, if at all. Joseph Smith III to R. R. Dana, March 6, 1894, RLDS Archives. The publication of the Holy Scriptures at the end of 1867 inspired version was cause for happiness in the church of that early day. Joseph sent a very nicely bound copy to his friend William H. Kelly and warned him in advance of his intention to do so in a letter lightly touched with a hint of humour. I'm writing... I will start again. I am waiting the arrival of a new supply of the Holy Scriptures, when I will send you a good one, for which you may pay when wind, tide, land, flood, opportunity, leisure, convenience, finances, and disposition permit. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, January 15th, 1868, RLDS Archives. Gifts of the Spirit in the Life of the Church Ever since the inception of Latter-day Saintism, some of the, its inherents have been inclined to equate the gifts of the Spirit with the essence of their faith and religious experience in the Church. Joseph Smith Jr. had sought during the first year or so of the Church's existence to deal with certain excesses of, or abuses of the spiritual gifts, see Doctrine and Covenants section 46 and 52, for indications of this development. The trend continued in the early reorganisation, and Joseph III seemed to have been cautious about it. He was watchful for the development of talented ministers and somewhat anxious when they seemed to be verging upon excessive use of the spiritual gifts for the ultimate negative effects had upon their own ministries and upon the saints generally. In these memoirs, Joseph recalls three separate examples of problems in this area. Um, pages 133c... 145A, 152BC, 153A. Apparently, Brother J.J. Cornish had come under the influence of John Shippey's ecstatic tendencies, an idea that had concerned Joseph III, who mentioned it in a letter to William H. Kelly and then made a statement of principle. Since I wrote you, Brother Cornish has written in such a way that satisfies me that he has found or is finding his level again. I think him an excellent man, so far as the influence of Brother Shippey is concer concerned, it is waning, touching J.J. Cornish. Many have mistaken the frothy foam upon noisy rapids for the landmarks of safety in deep water. So many have mistaken the gifts of the gospel for all of Mormonism. It has wrought distress to all, disaster to some. Joseph Smith III to William H. Kelly, March 8, 1878, RLDS Archives. In a letter to Brother W. W. Booth on March 27, 1896, letter book 6, page 366, Joseph affirmed that the outward manifestations are not of prime importance in a branch. Wisdom, knowledge, faith, all seen, unseen gifts are the better and more essential to the life of the branch. So problematic was the abuse of the spiritual gifts on one occasion that Elder George Mottershed of London, Ontario, was faced with the decision whether to cut a member off from the church on the strength of an accusation delivered or made through revelation. He appealed to Joseph III for advice and was told, I do not approve of cutting anyone off from the church upon an accusation made through revelation, as you state was in this case. My reason is, the Lord declares that every word shall be established by two or more witnesses, referring to persons who may testify. 
Besides, to cut persons off upon that sort of accusation makes a bad precedent, which might and has in the past resulted in a very bad and unreliable work. The revelation may serve to put you on your guard. Don't let them press you to hasty actions that will not stand the law. Bear with the irregularities of conduct till you can prove it, then act. Joseph Smith III to George Mottershed, September the 26th, 1878, letter book 1, pages 464 to 465. Apostle John H. Lake, as if to lend weight to this position, warned the people of the Bevia, Missouri branch, against making charges in social meetings, and should a brother or sister seek to reveal a complaint against anyone, call them to order in all kindness and say to them that God does not reveal accusations. As these memoirs show, Joseph Smith III believed in the proper and restrained use of the spiritual gifts, but he was well versed in the dangers inherent in their unwise use as, as manipulative devices. Openness to opposing or different views. Occasionally, Joseph III's public. I'll start again. Occasionally, Joseph III publicly affirmed the inevitability and desirability of diverse opinions in the church. He usually tempered such affirmations with the view that as such diverse views were openly shared and appreciated, some persons would of necessity change their views for the sake of unity, not an enforced conformity. If nothing were said or written until all the brethren and all men were of one opinion on a given topic, where and how would there ever be an interchange?